There is a, a small hole up here, and I think Dean's afraid he's going to fall into it because he always moves the pulpit back. But All right. Um, some of you have politely, politely complained to me about the lack of notes up on the, the screen behind me, uh, and you say you can't fill in your blanks, so... Um, I'm not going to explain why I don't do notes on the, on, the, on the overhead, but I will say that on the website, the, the completed notes are on the website. If you just go to the media page and click on the sermon, you'll see the notes there. You can always get it. Hopefully today I'll go a little slower and you can, you can fill in your blanks. They're not too hard. Um, I was thinking of last week I shared how I, I had an opportunity to talk with a, a former Muslim who was an atheist about Christ, and so I was just thinking about other chances I've had to share the gospel. I'm not a great evangelist. I don't want to give you that idea. I'd like to be a better one. But uh, I I was thinking about some times I've talked to people about the gospel. And there's been a number of times where um, people have seemed very interested, even excited. And so then I get excited, right? Because I'm like, wow, this person's about to come to Christ. Uh, But often, not always, but often at some point they get this concerned look on their face. And, And they say, wait a minute, wait, to be a Christian, do I have to give up blank, whatever it is? Do I have to give up sleeping with my girlfriend or smoking weed or do I have to go to church? It is so tempting for me to say no because I want so badly for them to just come and accept Christ. I mean, I I truly believe people don't have to clean themselves up before they can come to Christ. You come to Christ first, he cleans you up, he makes you new. And I think often as Christians, especially evangelicals, we do kind of this bait and switch on people. And so we're like, hey, believe the gospel, it's by grace through faith, just come to Christ, you know, you can't earn it. And then as soon as they become a Christian, we give them this list of rules. We're like, okay, now here's what you got to do to make your way to heaven. And I don't want to do that with people. Uh, and, and even, you know, some of the things they're concerned about aren't even, I don't know, they're not even that big of a deal. Um, but I also know that deep, I know deep down that when somebody asks me that question, it's often a sign that she isn't quite ready to accept Christ. Sometimes I'm surprised. Sometimes I talk more and they're like, okay, no problem. And they become a Christian. But typically not. Because becoming a Christian means... That God has done this work in your heart that now Christ comes first in your life. You see his greatness, and so he becomes your highest love. And you trust his instructions about how to live. And so you say, okay, I don't care what I have to give up. Ultimately, I want Jesus. I want Christ. I want the treasure. Uh, Jesus tells a parable very familiar to, to us about the, it's often called the parable of the farmer or the sower. It's really the parable of the soils. Uh, but the first kind of soil is the hard, the farmer's throwing out the seed, and it's the hard path, and so the seed lands on the path, and it doesn't sink in, and the birds come and eat it, and it represents somebody with a hard heart. They hear the gospel, they're like, whatever, they, it doesn't sink in at all, it makes no difference to them. But then the next two soils are, are people who actually are interested in the gospel. The one is the rocky soil, not necessarily rocks on the top of the soil, but just underneath a thin layer of good soil, there's rocks. And so the, the seed goes down and it starts to grow, but it doesn't have good root system. And so when the hot sun comes out, it withers. I have a patch in my, my backyard that's kind of that way. I think there's like real thick clay underneath the soil. And so I try to plant grass and it just doesn't last when it gets hot out. 
Uh, and so those are people who get excited. They hear the gospel, they're excited about it. They're like, yeah, this is great. But then when things get hard, when persecution comes, like, ah, Jesus isn't worth it to me. I would rather have a comfortable life. And then the, the, the next soil is the soil with the weeds, where the seed gets planted, starts to grow, but there are weeds that grow up and choke the seed. And that's people who hear the gospel, they're interested, maybe even excited, but then they begin to think about other things, other worries, concerns, things that they care about more than Christ, and that ultimately chokes the gospel in their life. But the fourth soil is people hear and they respond, Jesus becomes their treasure, and they, they grow, their faith grows, and it multiplies. And I think what the, the parables are showing is that simply affirming that the gospel is true, or even getting excited about it, does not necessarily make someone a Christian. It's when someone sees the greatness of Jesus and trusts in him as her greatest treasure that she is truly a believer. He becomes more important to her than anything else and she follows his will for her life. And when she is forced to make a choice between Jesus and something else, ultimately, Jesus wins out. Now, it doesn't happen automatically. She's not like a robot. and I, It may be months or even years where she's struggling. But ultimately, at the end of the day, Jesus wins in her heart. And we're going to see that in our passage today in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. So turn there with me. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Some of you are probably getting tired of me reviewing uh, our sermon series, but I'm going to do it to make sure we're all on the same page. Uh, we've been doing a series called Next Steps. We're looking at the next, the, the steps of discipleship, the process, the stages of discipleship that we see in the Gospels, what Jesus took his disciples through. And we saw that the first stage is the come and see phase. Uh, John the Baptist introduces some disciples to Jesus, some, some of his disciples, some people who are kind of hanging around him. He introduces them to Jesus, and, G- and they say, hey, can we hang out with you? And Jesus is like, yeah, come and see. Come and see me. Come and get to know me. And so they just get to know Jesus. They get to see more and more of him. And we see that even after these 12 disciples become committed to Jesus, there's always people around Jesus who are in that come and see phase. And the, the, the Bible, the Gospels often talk about them as the crowds, Large crowds of people. And sometimes they're referred to as disciples, but really most of them are in this come and see phase. They've heard about Jesus. He's getting a reputation. He's a famous guy. They want to come and see him. They want to get to know him. They want to see him in action. Hear some of his teachings. Maybe bring a relative along who needs healing. So most of the people around Jesus are in that come and see phase. But last week we said the next level of true discipleship is the follow me stage. Where Jesus kind of draws a line in the sand. He says, okay, you've got to know me a little bit. You've seen me. But now if you want to be a disciple, you have to commit to follow me. You actually have to follow me and make me your rabbi, your master, your teacher. And so today, this week, and next week, we're going to look at what does that mean to follow Jesus? Uh, what does it mean to be his disciple a little bit more? And so let's read in verse 13. And by the way, in the Gospels, um, chronology, the, the chronology of Jesus' life isn't always, they're not arranged always chronologically, that's what I'm trying to say. Uh, they're re- arranged more thematically, and so some stories that come later actually probably came a little bit earlier. And this is a really critical time for Jesus' disciples. It's really a turning point for them. So verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man 
is. Caesarea Philippi was a pagan area, uh, Gentile territory. In the Old Testament, it had been the tribe of Dan and the city of Dan, but now it's just Gentile. It's about 35 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus takes his disciples up there, and it seems probably like they're on kind of a retreat. They need to get away. John the Baptist has just been killed. Jesus tried to take his disciples and have kind of a getaway, but they were followed by this huge crowd. And so he ends up feeding this crowd of 5,000 people by multiplying some food. But eventually, he is able to get his disciples away from the crowd. And the way they do that is by going up north into pagan territory where there's not many Jews. Uh, Again, it's Gentile. This area, um, people worshipped Pan. That was the main deity there. They had a big area for worshipping the god Pan. There were some other gods that they're worshipping. And so Jesus and his disciples are in this vicinity. And in Luke it says Jesus has been praying. And he comes out of prayer back to his disciples. And he asks them, who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man is a phrase. It sounds just like somebody saying, I'm a Son of Man, I'm a human. I'm a Son of Man. But that's not what Jesus is actually saying. He's, he's quoting from Daniel. In the book of Daniel, Daniel has this vision where he sees one, he says, a person who looked like a Son of Man. That means they looked human, but they were something more than human. And that person went up to the Ancient of Days, to God, and they were given power and dominion, rulership over the whole world the whole earth. They have that this person, this son of man, then set up a kingdom that will last forever. And so clearly Jesus knows who he is. He knows his identity. He is the son of man that Daniel's talking about. But he's asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they replied, some say John the Baptist. John the Baptist is dead, so some people think he, he uh, rose from the dead, not a resurrection per se, but kind of a, a natural resuscitation back to life. And now he has some supernatural power. Some people say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So the Jews at this time, they had this tradition that before the resurrection, the final judgment, uh, before the Messiah came, maybe, this was kind of a popular view, maybe Elijah would physically come back. Uh, And so there's kind of all these different views of Jesus. But what I want you to notice is that this isn't just unique to the Jews in this time. If you want to go out and talk to people in our world, in our community here in Torrance, uh, throughout much of the United States, throughout much of the world, and you ask them, who is Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? Most people will give you an answer similar to this. They'll say, oh, he's a prophet, he's a great teacher, he has some good, you know, good, good sayings. Most people will say that about Jesus. He's a great guy, right? He's a prophet, he's a teacher. But Jesus isn't satisfied with that answer. And so he says, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? That's the question Jesus asks every single person. It's not enough to just say, oh, yeah, yeah, he's a great guy. Well, what? no, really, what do you think personally? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you. And the you there is plural. So this was not revealed to all of you, all 12 of you. Peter's kind of speaking as a representative of the disciples. This is not revealed to all of you by man, by humans, by your own intelligence, but by my Father in heaven. This was divinely, supernaturally revealed to you. You didn't figure it out because you're so clever. God revealed it. And I tell you that you are Peter. Peter in Greek and in Aramaic means rock. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, of death, of hell, will not overcome it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he warned his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, that kind of ending there is kind of strange to us. What does it mean to give Peter the keys? Does it mean that he's a new pope? I don't think so. Um, But I think Jesus here is referring to Peter's evangelistic ministry, that he's going to share the gospel. Keys of a kingdom could mean the keys that would unlock the door, the gate of a city. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you the ability to open the gates of the kingdom for people. And whatever you bind... And bind means, in in Jewish tradition, bind and loose could refer to condemn and acquit. And so for people who reject the gospel, essentially you're going to bind them. You're going to say you're still condemned. And your proclamation reflects the will of heaven in that. Or if somebody accepts the gospel, you are going to loose them. You're going to say that they are acquitted of their sins. And that reflects the will of heaven. Jesus says, I'm giving you this ministry, but don't go around telling people that I'm the Christ. He doesn't need people getting confused about his identity. So the first, the the, the main thing I want you to see in this section here, the first essential part of following Jesus, this is in your notes, so don't blame me if you don't fill it in. (laughs) The first essential part of following Jesus is believing in his identity. Believing in his identity. Many people claim to follow Jesus' teachings, and they say he's a great prophet, and he's my friend, and all that, and that's good. But Jesus says that's not enough to be my disciple. Just to say that I'm a prophet or a teacher, just to say that I'm your buddy, you must believe in my identity. And the way that happens is that God reveals it and you believe it. God causes you to see, maybe not physically, most of us don't physically have a vision, but causes you to see spiritually. As you hear the gospel, as you read the gospel, you just, you just see, you just know, you see Jesus' greatness. You see his greatness as the Son of God, and you embrace it. You say, wow, I'm going to respond to him. I'm going to embrace him and who, all that God is for me in Jesus. It's like Paul describes it like a light shining in the darkness. In our sinful state, we're in darkness. Paul says that the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that we can't see God's glory. But God has made his light shine in our hearts, and Paul calls it the light of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. In other words, when, we're, when God opens your eyes, you look at Jesus and you see God's glory shining in his face in this unique way. The way that Jesus is doing ministry, the things that he's saying, he's saying um, the, the, his death and resurrection, you're like, man, this guy is more than just a guy. You see that glory. It's like a sun breaking through a, a dark, dark clouds. Before this point, the disciples were following Jesus because they thought he was the Messiah. They thought it was likely, it was probable. They, they could see his miracles, they could see his ministry, they could see more and more uh, glimmers, glimpses of his glory. And so they thought, yeah, we think maybe this guy is the Messiah, let's check it out. But eventually, this passage says, eventually they reached a point where they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. God enabled them to see his unique greatness so clearly that they had this deep-rooted conviction that he is the Son of God. And that was the basis for their faith, and it's the basis for all genuine faith. In a couple weeks, we're going to read about, and and Dean's going to talk about, how many disciples stopped following Jesus because they didn't understand his teachings. But the twelve, they stayed with Jesus. 
because they knew who he was. They often didn't understand him either. They often weren't any better off than the crowds in terms of understanding what he's saying, but they knew his identity. And if they hadn't known his identity, they wouldn't have kept following him. Often, I don't understand what Jesus is doing in my life. I know I'm a pastor. I should, I should always understand. what People come to me and they're like, what is, you know, help me understand what God's doing in my life. I don't know what he's doing in my life sometimes. I don't always understand what he's teaching me. But because I see his glory, I'm drawn to him. And I say with the disciples, Lord, where else would I go? You have the words of eternal life. I can't deny it. Maybe you have started following Jesus because you are interested in his teachings. Maybe your friends are followers of Jesus and and they've shown you so much love that that you want to follow Jesus too. Maybe someone has shared a powerful uh, apologetic argument with you that persuaded you for the existence of God and the resurrection of Christ. And all those are good. Those are all good. But to continue to follow Jesus... As a genuine Christian, a genuine believer, you have to see his unique greatness as the Son of God and embrace him as your greatest treasure. You have to be convinced, not just by the arguments or the love of others, but by your personal experience of knowing Jesus and loving and trusting him enough to give your life, to spend your life following him. Let's keep reading verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. So he, they just acknowledged him as the Savior, and he says, okay, I am the Messiah, I am the Savior, but the way I'm going to save God's people is not through political power, it's through my suffering and my death and my resurrection. Peter took him aside kind of privately, put his arm around him and said, come here, Jesus, come here. And began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. We won't let it. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. And you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. And then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then right after that, they have the transfiguration where they do see him. At least three of them do. The, sent, the second essential part of following Jesus that we see in this passage, this is in your notes, get ready for it. The second essential part of following Jesus is dying to your identity dying to your identity. Jesus is explaining what it means for him to be the Messiah. He's going to save God's people through his suffering, his death, not by conquering the Romans, not by setting up a kingdom right then. And Peter is not very thrilled to hear this. This isn't what he signed up for. It's not what he was expecting from a Messiah. And so he thinks probably that Jesus is suffering from depression and self-doubt. 
John the Baptist was recently killed by Herod. The leaders in Jerusalem are are antagonistic towards Jesus. And so Peter probably assumes that Jesus is feeling pessimistic about his ministry. That, yeah, he thinks he's the Messiah, but he's not sure if the whole thing's going to work out. He kind of sees the inevitable that these guys are going to kill him. And so Peter says he takes Jesus aside privately. And he begins to rebuke him for his negative attitude and, and assure him that God and the disciples would never let those things happen to Jesus. He's the Messiah. Of course he's going to win. God wouldn't let him die or suffer or be humiliated. That's not how things work. The good guys always win. Hasn't he watched Disney movies? I mean, come on, Jesus. Peter probably thought that he's doing Jesus a favor here. Encouraging Jesus in a moment of of doubt and despair. But that's not how Jesus saw it. And he gives Peter an incredibly harsh rebuke here. Um, He calls him Satan. It's pretty rough. I haven't called any of you Satan, at least in public. (laughs) I mean, he is, Jesus is tough. I mean, he's tough on religious leaders in the Bible. He is, but I don't think anywhere he says anything this terrible to anyone else. Peter gets it. He gets the worst blow that Jesus can give, and he's a disciple. He just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus appears to even do it in public. And I know Peter kind of takes him off to the side, but then Jesus, he he rebukes him, and then he turns to to the whole group, so it seems like he's talking out loud here. And in a culture where honor and shame are a big deal, it seems like Jesus is publicly humiliating Peter. And why? Why didn't he just say, hey, Peter, shh. Yeah, you don't quite understand what's going on. A good rabbi in this culture would only publicly rebuke a disciple if that person had made a huge mistake and it was incredibly important that no one ever repeated it. Peter, like most Jews at this time, has major misconceptions about how the Messiah will triumph over evil. Peter expected him to do it through political, supernatural power, but Jesus says he's going to do it through his suffering and his death. And he cannot afford to have Peter running around telling everybody that he's the Messiah who's going to defeat the Romans. Nor does Jesus need a stumbling block in his ministry. A stumbling block is a a source of temptation. It's, It's a block, it's a rock that people will trip over. And so when Peter is inspired by God, when he's listening to the Holy Spirit, he's like a rock that Jesus can build on. But when Peter's influenced by Satan, he's like a rock that people can trip over. Through Peter, Satan is making the same offer to Jesus that he made in the wilderness. A kingdom without a cross, without suffering, without redemption. Peter was expecting Jesus to make his life easy. He thought he had hitched his wagon to a rising star that would bring him political power and wealth and honor. He was an early adapter and he expected to benefit from it. But Jesus says, Peter, you're not thinking like God, you're thinking like men. The only way to know me, to really know me, is to have God's Spirit reveal me to you. But now you're reverting back to human ways of thinking about me. And you can't have it both ways. Either you know me by trusting God's revelation, or you don't know me because you're trusting what makes sense humanly. If you're following me based on what makes sense humanly, you're not going to make it. You won't be able to follow. Because following me means embracing a lifestyle that doesn't make sense humanly. It's an upside-down kingdom. Giving and losing so that you can gain. Dying so that you live. Suffering so that you can have joy. 
And the values and the ways of God's kingdom are often opposite of what natural human understanding would expect and desire. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says that a follower must deny his own ambition and lose his life for me in order to find it. The words in, uh, in verse 25 and 26, the word there for the words life and soul in the English, it's the same Greek word underlying them. It's psyche. Psyche. Now, when that word is used in distinction from the body, it means like your soul, your spirit. But when it's used in connection with your body, it means your inner life, your inner self, the, the center, the core of your identity, the core of who you are. And Jesus is saying that to save yourself, you must be willing to deny your ambitions about what you want to be and die to who you think you are, even to the point of humiliation and suffering and death, in order to find your true identity in following me. About 10 years ago, maybe, there was a movie that came out um, called Ants. Probably most of you have seen it. Uh, I've seen it because I have kids. And uh, in the movie, at the, the, the opening scene, there's this ant. He has the voice of Woody Allen, and he's talking to his aunt psychiatrist. And, uh, and Woody says, I, I, I just feel so insignificant And the ant psychiatrist says, well, we're making some progress here. You are insignificant. And then the view pans out, and you see this huge ant colony, all these different ants. And the rest of the movie shows the struggle between two different ways of finding your identity and finding your significance. One way is what we would call the traditional way. Uh, It's very common still in the eastern part of the world, so it's sometimes called the eastern way. It's where you find your significance by losing your identity in the whole. You lose your identity within your family, within your community, within the cosmos. And on that view, that traditional view, the question, who am I, is a stupid question. You're part of a family. You're part of a community. You have an assigned role in society that is necessary for its survival and its success. So just do your duty. Stop asking questions. Stop thinking about yourself as an individual. The other way of knowing your identity, of finding it, is what is often called the modern way, the the Western way, because it's common in the Western part of the world. It's where you find your significance, your identity, by embracing what makes you unique as an individual. Finding out what you want to do, not what other people want you to do, and then being authentic to that, to your own feelings and your own desires. But Jesus offers a third way of finding your identity and your significance. He says that individual identity and happiness matter. They matter. He says you, as an individual, you are significant to God. And I want your joy to be full and to last forever. But the only way to truly find yourself and to gain lasting happiness is by first losing yourself, losing your identity and following me. By letting go of what currently defines your identity and your significance and finding them in me. Letting my identity, my mission define yours. If you try to build your identity on worldly things like family and honor and riches and power and physical pleasure, not only will you fail to find lasting happiness, but when those things are gone, your identity will be gone. It may happen in this life, but it will definitely happen in the next. And in the next life, it will be too late to get a new identity, too late to get a new self. There's nothing you'll be able to give to obtain one. 
When God rewards each person according to what they have done, your deeds will show what you built your identity on. And so Jesus says the way to gain happiness and significance is by letting go of self-obsession and by pursuing me. It's by knowing who you are in me and that you are nothing without me. It's by having your identity so wrapped up in me that no matter what you suffer, it's worth it in following me. Because I am your greatest desire and my desires become your desires. From a worldly perspective, especially from a Western perspective, that sounds like slavery. It looks like a cage. It looks like being inauthentic with how you feel. But Jesus says it's actually the path to freedom. A freedom where you're no longer controlled by how you feel and how you desire and what the world says you must do and must be. Where you're able to do what is truly good and truly best. It's a path of true authenticity. Because it shows how God made you to live. It may feel inauthentic now because of how deeply ingrained our sinful nature is, but someday, Jesus says, it will feel more natural than breathing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is one of those harder passages that we inevitably get to when we talk about discipleship, taking up our cross, following you. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace, that you would open us, our eyes up to see you as, as the supreme treasure, as a, as a treasure of surpassing beauty and greatness that is worth everything we have to do to follow you. Lord, wait, may we not try to follow you out of legalism because it just won't work. But Lord, we ask that you would give in our hearts a desire, that you would open our eyes to you and help us to respond to that. I pray for your grace to work in this congregation in all of our lives, Lord, in all of our hearts this week, and helping us to see you more clearly, to desire you more strong, strongly, uh, to follow you more faithfully. We ask this in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me for the benediction? This week, may we say with Paul that whatever was my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Not that I have already obtained all this or have been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. May that be true of us this week and for the rest of our lives. You're dismissed.